All right, Genesis chapter 41. Tonight we are coming to the exaltation of Joseph. It is here that Joseph becomes second only to Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the ancient world. Um, Joseph has been mightily used by God to reveal to Pharaoh that seven years of plenty are coming and then seven years of severe famine. Joseph has boldly proposed to Pharaoh that he appoint someone to ensure that proper preparations are made so that lives will be saved. Joseph has suggested that overseers be appointed throughout the kingdom to help make these preparations come to pass. And that's where we left off this morning. Now, my original plan was to cover all of Genesis 41 in two sermons. The first sermon on 1 through 36, which we did this morning. The second on the remainder of the chapter tonight. However, as I started putting together this message, there were just so many good and important truths in this first paragraph, verses 37 to 45, uh, that I simply could not get them all into one sermon. And so tonight, we're going to focus only on this paragraph, verses 37 to 45. And I pray that God will make us doers and not just hearers of His Word. So, Our study of the remainder of this chapter, uh, both tonight and when we come back to this passage, will include four headings, four headings. We're going to see tonight the exaltation of Joseph, and that's the only heading we're going to see tonight, the exaltation of Joseph. Let's, Let's see it. Let's begin reading in verse 37, Genesis 41, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of Om. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So from this paragraph, I see... Four minor truths and two major truths. Now, when I call these first four truths minor truths, I do not mean that they are minor in importance. What I mean is they are not the central lessons of the text. They are taught in the text, and they are important. And we need to hear these these truths. But the last two truths we're going to look at tonight are major in the sense that they are the fundamental or the central truths that we ought to take away from the passage. So we're going to see six in all, 
four that are kind of truths that we encounter along the way, and then two that are overarching central truths of the passage. So truth number one is summed up well by Proverb 27.2, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Here is the first principle. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Our paragraph contains three statements that Pharaoh makes to Joseph. In verses 39 and 40, Pharaoh declares to Joseph that he has been selected to be second only to Pharaoh in authority. He calls Joseph discerning and wise. Then in verse 41, Pharaoh declares to Joseph that he shall have authority over the entire kingdom. And in verse 44, Pharaoh says to Joseph that nothing will happen in Egypt without his consent. So in all of these wonderful things that are happening to Joseph, we only see Pharaoh speaking. Joseph does not say a word in this paragraph. All of the words spoken, all of the actions taken in this paragraph until the very end of the last verse are by Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the active person in this paragraph. Joseph is passive. In verse 42, Pharaoh puts his signet ring on Joseph's hand. Joseph isn't reaching for the ring. Joseph isn't seeking this position, this status, this glory for himself. But God, through Pharaoh, is giving it to him. We saw this morning that Joseph had an opportunity to boast in himself. Pharaoh had said to him, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph, rather than saying, yes, that's me, that's, that's me, I get the credit. No, he responded, not me, it is God. Joseph refused to praise himself. He gave glory to the one to whom it is due. And now, in God's gracious providence, Joseph is going to be incredibly blessed. Church, one of the truths we see in the scripture is that God draws near to the humble. Isaiah 66, 2, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Joseph is a wonderful example of this. He knew God and he loved God. He feared God and had such a reverence for Him that he would not compromise his integrity and break God's commandments even under the most intense temptations. And now, though Joseph has not sought these things, Joseph has not pursued these blessings, it is God's pleasure to give them to him. So what were the blessings that Joseph received? First, he received his freedom from prison. Second, he received freedom from his slavery to Potiphar. There's no indication that he had ceased to be Potiphar's slave until this time. Now his freedom from slavery is granted to him. Third, Joseph is now elevated to this new office in which he is second only to Pharaoh himself. Fourth, Joseph receives the signet ring of the king, the symbol of Pharaoh's authority and power. He will now be able to validate documents in the king's name. Fifth, he receives new garments of fine linen and a golden chain to wear around his neck. Remember, Joseph once had a very fine robe that was forcibly taken off of him when he was attacked by his brothers. 
Now God is giving to Joseph uh, the finest robes in the kingdom. Sixth, Joseph receives the honor of riding second to Pharaoh through the kingdom. As Joseph rides through the kingdom, they will call out before him, Bow the knee. He who has sought no glory will have homage paid to him by multitudes. Seventh, Joseph receives a new name, Zephanath Paneah. Maybe that's a baby name you want to save for future. Giving Joseph a new name shows that Pharaoh still has authority over Joseph, but also reveals that this foreigner is now to be accepted and honored by the Egyptian people. He is now one of them, an Egyptian. As best as we can tell, the name that Pharaoh gave Joseph means God speaks and lives. Eighth, Joseph received a wife the daughter of a man named Potiphar, who, by the way, is a different man than Potiphar. Potiphar is the priest of On, a pagan priest. Yet as we will see, though Joseph was willing to receive an Egyptian name and he was willing to receive an Egyptian wife, he did not accept the Egyptian religion. He will continue to honor his God as God. He will give his sons Hebrew names. Now, some people have read through this paragraph and seen how this blessing after blessing after blessing is lauded upon Joseph, and they've assumed that there is no way that this can be true. I mean, it almost reads like a fairy tale as the hero of the story suddenly receives the life ever after, right? Happily ever after. It's all the more unbelievable to some scholars because they say, why would Joseph, a Hebrew, be given all of these blessings in an Egyptian kingdom? However, not only do we have our assurance by God's Spirit that the Bible is the Word of God and therefore true, but we also have good evidence that just the kind of thing described here actually did happen in history and in Egypt's history. We have ancient writings that reveal to us that there were foreigners who obtained very high positions in Egyptian government. We also have records that tell us the kinds of celebrations that occurred when a new pharaoh was brought into his position, and they are strikingly similar to the kinds of things that we read in this paragraph as Joseph is elevated to second in command. Now, all that happens to Joseph here is sealed by verse 44. Verse 44, we have a formal declaration from Pharaoh. I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Those words, I am Pharaoh, carry huge weight. Egyptians believed that the Pharaoh was the living incarnation of the sun god, Re. The Pharaoh was even called the son of Re, the Horus. The Pharaoh was believed to be endowed with the spirits of the goddesses of both upper and lower Egypt. And therefore, while many in Pharaoh's court may have protested having this Hebrew suddenly placed over them, the Pharaoh's word was final. In the view of the Egyptians, the the Pharaoh's declaration carried divine authority. Now, all of this happened to Joseph, and he had sought none of it. He did not boast in himself. He did not praise himself. He did not seek to glorify himself. He was humble. Not perfect, but he was humble. And God blessed his socks off. And so Mount Hermon, here is the question for us. 
Are we the kind of people who praise ourselves? Are we the kind who wish that others would give us more recognition? Do we seek the praise of men? Do we openly boast about our own accomplishments? Are we guilty of the humble brag? You know what the humble brag is? It's when you find a subtle way to draw attention to yourself while pretending that you're not, right? It's like name dropping. The other day I was hanging out with Michael Jordan and he went, oh, it's not a big deal, you know, right? And you're humbly bragging about things in your life. Church, what do you have to boast about? Ultimately, does not every good thing we have come down as a gift of grace from God's hand? At the bottom of anything good in our life, do we not see that it is God who is ultimately responsible and therefore worthy of the praise? Why would we want to exalt ourselves when we've come to know the one who was so much more worthy of all adoration and glory and worship. And so we ought to learn from Joseph's example to imitate him, to live for God's glory, to live for for blessing God's name. And then we shouldn't be surprised if in our desire to see God glorified, God finds pleasure in blessing us because that's the way God is. It is his joy to bless those who find their joy in him. Well, truth number two is this. Truth number two is this. It is wise to bring to power those who have the Spirit of God. It is wise to bring to power those who have the Spirit of God. This is a point Matthew Henry makes in his commentary. We've already seen in a past sermon that that Pharaoh, this particular Pharaoh, was probably not a fool. In the case of the cupbearer and the baker, it appears that he made the right call, that the right man was punished, and that the right man was restored to his office. And so here, the decision that Pharaoh makes to put Joseph into power was a wise decision. After all, look at Joseph's track record. We saw what happened when Joseph was in Potiphar's house, how Potiphar's house flourished. We saw what happened when Joseph was in prison and how all came under his responsibility and was done well. And now here, Pharaoh acts wisely in bringing Joseph to power. He says in verse 38, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? It was very clear to Pharaoh that Joseph was the man to take on this new leadership role. Now, it is amazing how many parallels there are in this part of Joseph's life with a man who's to come centuries later, a man by the name of Daniel. Daniel will also bring an interpretation to a king. In his case, he interpreted the writing on the wall to King Belshazzar. And then we read that Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And in that passage, just like with Joseph, we're told that Belshazzar said to Daniel that the Spirit of God was within him. And so here is a qualification that we should always look for in our voting in election season. In our country, we have the power to appoint those who are over us. Surely we should want first and foremost people who have the Spirit of God. 
We want people who know God. We want leaders who care about righteousness, who walk in integrity, who are led by God's truth. Now, admittedly, this is difficult. Men with the Spirit of God within them are not easily found in the political sphere. Based on God's Word, I don't think we have any reason to believe that either of our presidential candidates this year are true believers. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't vote for one of them. It just means we shouldn't vote for them as if we're voting for a brother in Christ. But when we look at many of the most powerful political positions in our country, we see that there are very few candidates that have given us reason to believe that God is their God and that His principles are uppermost in their hearts and affections. But when such people appear, when there is that rare occasion when we see a true believer who loves the Lord, who stands for God's principles and runs for office, we ought to think seriously about giving them our vote. Now, those who are in power and have the opportunity to appoint others should also look for this qualification. Why in the world would any president appoint a Supreme Court justice who does not have the Spirit of God within him or her? Surely the people we want to be tackling the most difficult cases of judgment and discernment ought to be people of humility before God, prayer, concern for justice, as God defines justice. And so the fact that neither we nor our political leaders, when I say we, I mean we as an American society, the fact that we as an American society, the fact that the political leaders that we choose are often quick to elect and appoint people who do not have the Spirit of God within them makes us wonder whether we still have any right to call ourselves a Christian nation. Now, perhaps there will be an occasion in your future when you have the opportunity to appoint someone to an important position. Maybe it is in your workplace. Maybe it is in an organization that you are a part of. But if there are such candidates available, consider the wisdom of appointing someone who is giving evidence of the Spirit of God in their lives. This should be a person who loves God, who trusts Christ who cares about righteousness and works hard, has integrity, is kind and compassionate towards others, is humble and always seeks to be fair. These are the kinds of people that we should want to put in power. Pharaoh saw Joseph. Joseph said, Pharaoh, you need to find a man who is wise and discerning. And Pharaoh says, I'm looking at him. Do we have the discernment that Pharaoh had to know a wise and discerning person when we see them? We should look for men and women in whom they have the Spirit of God to appoint to powerful positions. Number three, truth number three. Earthly blessings, despite their dangers, are still blessings. Earthly blessings, despite their dangers, are still blessings. Now, this paragraph takes the time to walk us through many of the earthly blessings that came to Joseph. This is not simply a matter of curiosity. We are not being told this just for information's sake. We are meant to see each of these blessings that are now coming onto Joseph's life as a real blessing from God. Joseph is being blessed in this passage. He has suffered. He has been humbled. He has gone through the fire. He has been tried. He has been tested. And now he is being blessed. Now, wealth, recognition, power, these all come with dangers. 
Concerning wealth, we need to remember that Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich rich man to go to heaven. That's a very serious statement. That is a serious statement. And we must not take lightly the ability that money and possessions have to pull our hearts away from the Lord Jesus Christ. We also need to remember, though, that it is not wealth itself that is evil. Paul said to Timothy that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then in the next verse, he does not say that money is the root of all evil. He says it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evils. And so what we see here in our passage is God bringing great wealth to a man who was not pursuing great wealth. Well, recognition is the same. There is nothing inherently wrong with fame or popularity. What is dangerous is when we begin to seek after it. The love of recognition can be a root of all kinds of evils. When we become too hungry for the applause of men, we will begin to forsake the will of God. Our lives are to be lived for an audience of one. If God is not pleased with us, it doesn't matter if the whole world is. Paul said in Galatians 1.10 that if he were still trying to please man, he would not be a servant of Christ. Church, we cannot serve two masters. You can either live life for man's approval or you can live life for God's. Joseph was not seeking recognition, and yet God has given it to him. Power, authority fall into the same category. There is nothing intrinsically evil about power or authority. Jesus has all power and authority. It is God who created us to have dominion over the earth. But the desire for power, The desire for authority has corrupted many a person. We've seen this throughout history as the lust for power has wreaked havoc on this planet, leading to the slaughter of millions. Many of us have seen how the lust for power can can wreak havoc in your workplaces. Many of you have seen it in local churches. And so the desire to have authority can tempt us to do all sorts of deceptive and wicked things, things that we thought we'd never do, the lust of power will drive us to do. The point, though, is that Joseph was not pursuing wealth, was not pursuing recognition, was not pursuing power. He was pursuing faithfulness to God. And now God is giving him all these things. We are to see them as real blessings. Look now at how Joseph can influence the world for God. Joseph has been faithful in little things. Now Joseph is being given the opportunity to be faithful with much. Now we don't know if many Egyptians came to trust in Joseph's God through his witness. But what a platform Joseph was given in Egypt and in the world because of his faithfulness. Ultimately, we do know that there are going to be some brothers who are going to come to know the true and living God through Joseph's exaltation. Now, this will definitely be a new kind of test for Joseph. Will Joseph be as content in God now as when he was in slavery? Will his heart continue to to love God above all these other gifts? 
Will Joseph be just as faithful in the day of plenty as he was in the day of slavery and imprisonment? And so there is a test for Joseph here, but it is nonetheless a blessing. And so I ask you this question. Can we rejoice with our brothers and sisters when God blesses them in some material or societal way? Are you able to praise God when your fellow brother or sister in Christ has an opportunity to be even more useful for the kingdom through greater wealth, through greater recognition, through greater authority? Can you rejoice with them as they rejoice? When these kinds of blessings come your way, do you receive them as blessings? Are you thankful for the promotion at work? Are you thankful for the recognition that someone showed to you? Are you thankful for a a little bit more income maybe this year than you had the year before? And do you see this as a stewardship given to you from God? If one of the greatest blessings of all is having the privilege to live for God's glory in this world, then surely another blessing is being given by God greater and greater capacity to have greater and greater influence through these things for Christ's name. So when these blessings come, let us be thankful for them. Let us be humbled by them. And let us be faithful stewards of what God brings our ways. Don't look at money as evil. Don't look at power as evil. Don't look at recognition as evil. They are inherently good and are blessings. But we are not to pursue them. We are to pursue faithfulness to God. For faithful over little, He will bring us over much. Truth number four. Truth number four. We should esteem and exemplify a commitment to faithfulness in our responsibilities. See how this flows from the last point. We should esteem and exemplify a commitment to faithfulness in our responsibilities. We should see this as very important, that we be found faithful in all of our callings and all of our obligations. It was Joseph's integrity especially his work ethic that caused him to be blessed, even when he was a slave in Potiphar's house, even when he was a prisoner in the king's prison. And now, in the very last verse of our paragraph, after having been the passive person throughout the entire paragraph, we've seen Pharaoh saying this, Pharaoh doing this, Pharaoh saying this, Pharaoh doing this. Finally, at the end of all of these blessings given to Joseph, we finally see Joseph do something. And what does Joseph do he gets to work. That's what we see. Verse 45, so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. We do not read of Joseph settling into a new lifestyle of idleness and ease. Instead, there's work to be done. There are lives to be saved from a famine that is coming. There are overseers to be appointed throughout the various regions of the kingdom. Pharaoh has now given to Joseph not only these great privileges, but also these great responsibilities. And all we see in this paragraph is that Joseph gets to it. And so, friends, I ask us, do we have that kind of attitude? Do we value work as a gift to us from God? Do we find joy in accomplishing what he has placed on us to accomplish? The Bible does not look fondly on idleness. We saw it this morning in our scripture reading through 2 Thessalonians. It's the devil 
who wants God's people to be idle. Paul told the church in Thessalonica, if anyone is unwilling to work, that person should not eat. We reap what we sow. If we want to be useful to God in this life, we ought to work hard. And so here are what I'm calling the four minor or four incidental truths of this paragraph. Again, they're not minor in importance. Number one, let another praise you, not your own mouth. Number two, it is wise to bring to power those who have the Spirit of God. Number three, earthly blessings, despite their dangers, are real blessings. And number four, we should esteem and exemplify a commitment to faithfulness in our responsibilities. Now, I want to close by drawing our attention to the two major overarching central truths of the paragraph. The first one is this. God will be faithful to exalt His people. God will be faithful to exalt His people. For so long, Joseph sought to honor and obey his God, and the results were more suffering. He was wronged by his brothers. He was wronged by Potiphar's wife. He was wronged by the cupbearer. He was a slave for 13 years. He was a prisoner for part of that time. He was separated from his family, including the father who loves him so dearly, the father who has believed for 13 years that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And yet at the end of this time of humbling, God is faithful to reward Joseph with great blessing. This is the way of God. He humbles us and then he exalts us. This is also a picture of our lives. Our life on this earth is our time of humbling. In this life, we will face many trials. In this life, we will be wronged by others. In this life, we will have our hearts broken. We will have our resolve tested. We will have our strength broken. It is in this life that we suffer daily in our battle against sin. It is in this life that we wake up every morning to a world full of injustice, so much so that sometimes our very souls cry out for God to come and to set things right. In this life, we battle dark seasons of depression, illnesses that cause us great physical and emotional pain, stresses and anxieties that keep us from enjoying God's gifts as we should. In all of this, we are being humbled. We are being taught to fall out of love with this world and more in love with God. We are being tested. This is the hard place for us. This is the hard time for us. Will we be faithful to our God now? Will we trust God now? Will we submit to His will, happily knowing His love for us? Will we do what He says even when it hurts? But just as Joseph came through a time of humbling, and was exalted by God. So the Scriptures promise to us that we too will one day be exalted. In fact, it's one of the central promises of Scripture to God's people. Your time of humbling will culminate the way Christ's time of humbling culminated, in death. Your body will be put to the ground. Your soul will immediately go into the presence of God and you will behold God's face in the person of Jesus Christ. All of your sorrows will flee away in the light 
of God's glory. You will be made instantly like Christ in perfect righteousness and in perfect happiness. Very soon we're going to get to Romans 8. We're going to hear Paul say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. LeBron James is an amazing basketball player. I stink at basketball. You can still compare me and LeBron James. I make one out of 100 shots. He makes you know, 95 out of 100 shots. But you can compare, right? You, you can put me beside LeBron James and say, oh, there's a lot of difference there, but we can compare. Paul says that the difference between the, our suffering in this life and the glory we are going to have when we are exalted is so great that there is no value at all in even trying to compare them. Our bodies will rise and be made perfect. We will enter the glories of a renewed earth. All of our tears will be wiped away forever. Death will be no more. Along with all mourning, along with all sorrow, along with all pain, we will live in a world in which pain does not exist. You even imagine that. No physical pain, no emotional pain. We're so used to our suffering in this life that a world without suffering almost seems too good to be true. That that, that can't be real, a world without pain. That's all we've known, but it is true. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Christ, who is at God's right hand, are pleasures forevermore. And we are His, and we will be with Him forever if we know Him by faith. And so this passage ought to encourage us as we see the pattern of how God works with His people exemplified in the life of Joseph. Today, we are being humbled, but a better day is coming. And just as the famine coming to Egypt would be so great that the days of plenty would seem like a distant memory, so the glories of heaven are going to be so great that our days of humbling on earth are going to seem like a distant memory. In fact, it won't take long before they will be a distant memory because the days of glory last on and on and on forever. So that's our fifth truth, the first major one. God will be faithful to exalt His people. And this is the second major central truth of the passage. Joseph is pointing us to Christ. Joseph is pointing us to Christ. Like Joseph, Christ left His Father's side. Joseph was taken by force. Jesus left his father's side willingly. Like Joseph, Jesus suffered for many years. He bore scorn and reproach, and it culminated in him giving himself up for sinners at the cross. Joseph kept his integrity, and he suffered. Jesus kept his integrity, and he suffered. Jesus suffered perfectly. He never once complained. He never once grumbled. He never once argued against His Father. Like Joseph, Jesus' chief concern was the glory of God. And even when that meant bearing a crown of thorns, even when that meant going to a painful death, Jesus was willing to endure it for His Father's sake. And therefore, because Jesus found His joy in glorifying the Father, even if it meant putting Himself on a cross, God's pleasure was to exalt His Son. And He exalted Jesus to His very right hand. 
Jesus was given all authority over heaven and earth. The signet ring of the Father has been given to the Son. Jesus had this before He came to earth, but only as the Son of God. Now He has His Father's authority as the God-man. He is Lord not only as God, but as the chief man, the second Adam, the one who earned this position through humble faithfulness. Through the gospel, by His Spirit, Christ is traveling throughout the world. Pastors and missionaries are declaring to the world, bow the knee, bow the knee. God has said, I am God. And without Jesus' consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the earth. Indeed, nothing happens in this world apart from Christ's will. And moreover, just like Joseph, Jesus is given a bride, a bride he purchased, a bride to be his own. Joseph was humbled that he might be exalted and ultimately save the lives of many. Jesus was humbled that he would be exalted and ultimately save all that the Father is giving to him. And so we ought to look to our Redeemer, our Savior, the one who was faithful for our sakes. And this passage ought to cause us to love him. It ought to cause us to cherish him. It ought to cause us to meditate on the depths of what Christ endured and the glory that has now been bestowed upon him. And we ought to rejoice and we ought to trust him. Let's pray.